Good evening. This is your loyal host, William A. Wellman. In addition to creating Hello from the Hallowoods every week, I write novels, read horror stories, and tune in to the work of other podcasters in the horror fiction space today. Sometimes I invite them into my dimly lit parlor for an armchair conversation about horror. In this bonus episode, I sat down with Rat Grimes to talk about the border between the weird, the surreal, and the horrible, and other things about living in Ohio. This is the Skull Sessions Somewhere, Ohio. We are here with the lovely and mysterious Rat Grimes today. Rat, could you please describe what it is you do around here? Corporate would like to know. Sure. Um, I write and, I guess, produce, you could say. I do a lot of the editing and music and sound design um, for a series that's completed, the Dead Letter Office of Somewhere, Ohio. That's all done for now. And the Department of Variants of Somewhere, Ohio. Kind of loosely related uh, audio dramas. Um, both horror-ish, weird fiction-ish. And uh, that's my, my main thing. That is one of the things I've really enjoyed about the Somewhere, Ohio series, is that Although I feel like we have a lot of audience crossover within the like horror space for fiction, yours does verge a bit into a genre that I find hard to describe. It's almost like <laughs> office weirdness. Um, yeah, yeah. How did you find your way into like that particular flavor? Uh, sure. Yeah, it's tricky when marketing yourself. Um, you can say you can give so many genres like um, sci-fi, horror, dark comedy, surreal, and everyone just tunes out after the first. Um, but yeah, so I grew up reading a lot of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, it was like my guy. Uh, <laughs> then I, you know, got into various fantasy things and read uh, like Redwall. Um, I read uh, the Drista Orden books, um, a lot of fantasy stuff. But um, eventually I kind of, I, I started running D&D when I was 12 or 13. And that really got me into like wanting to do stories and stuff um, for other people. Um, but I didn't actually like start seriously writing until like 2020. Um, I had written some poetry. I've got a couple poems published, but like short stories were pretty rare i wrote like you know one every year or two before that um and when i started writing i really just realized like yeah i love horror i love weird surreal stuff that's got to be what i write partially because i really like it and partially because it has its own kind of internal logic that works for me really well that a lot of other genre um writing just i can't really wrap my head around too well like I don't think you'd really want me writing a fantasy novel. Uh, I think it would get into like five pages of introducing like the world and characters, and then it would just throw it aside for some something else happening. So that's I kind of why I kind of stick with the horror and weird fiction. First, I have to ask, what was your favorite Redwall book? Um, and if I can remember the names, there was um, was it the story of some guy's name? It has like a red border. There's a mouse with a sword on the front um Jacques maybe I don't remember but that one was really good it was like a prequel I think yes was it Martin the warrior that might be it yeah yeah 
because Jacques like the author, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah. His <laughs> yeah. name is on the cover. You're not wrong. Yeah. 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 I think it's, yeah. I think that's the one. Now, as a kid, I binged through the Red Wall series. So mm -hmm. why did that one capture your imagination? Um, part of it is the little critters. <laughs> um, I just liked the, the animals, um, and an even bigger story series I read that is maybe, maybe less relevant. I don't know. Animorphs. I read a lot of Animorphs, but I, in Redwall, I liked, um, just kind of the, the setting of it, um, and the setting of scenes, um, you know, where you'll, you have a couple characters kind of come up and then they describe the jam that they're going to have. And like, that was just really interesting in a way that like I liked Lord of the Rings a lot. I really loved the movies, but the books got a little more world buildy and kind of like focusing on language, of course, because that's what Tolkien loved. But the Redwall series kind of just felt like maybe not more grounded, but it just more catered to my interests with the the animal warriors and the food spreads and all of that. I think Redwall grounds a lot of its sort of lore within the lives of characters yeah you generally only know about a hero if it's someone that you know a young sprite with his first thumbtack sword <laughs> is like aspiring to live up to right and then you might even get to experience the life of that hero in a later book that's right. you know set for the rest I think one of my my all-time favorite from that series has to be uh, one that was called The Pearls of Lutra, which was a treasure hunt um, <laughs> for these various pearls that had been hidden all around Redwall and beyond. Mm -hmm. And so it was a lot of like cryptic riddles and things right. that would make like a dungeon master very happy. Exactly. There's lizard pirates. There's oh. like a hypnotic snake that they feed people to on a faraway island. Like I was always amazed that they had the power to make random forest animals like weasels or lynx suddenly seem very threatening and yeah. intimidating. Yeah, you wouldn't think so. But like when you're from the perspective of, say, a mouse or a mole, you know, they find a way to make it work. Why was it that you fell into writing? I know that you'd mentioned you kept up with short stories and sort of like the urge of writing takes you, but mm -hmm. how did it happen around 2020, you'd mentioned, that you started to really invest more uh, into that? Sure. Before then, I think I had a couple short horror stories. I was kind of working on like a little mini series that was like, you know, each one was based around like a fear or something. I'm sure uh, if it had gone on, it would have been more interesting but it's so hard to get people to read written text like fiction um unless you have you know either you can publish yourself which i did not do uh or you have an agent and publisher and you know the, the literary world is brutal um and even just like online fiction is still difficult to get any kind of traction with um so i wrote a couple of those would post them get one two views and eventually was like i this is a lot of time and effort for basically nothing coming out of it um other than you know for me i always have to be doing something um, i have to have some kind of project going on even though it stresses me out and makes my life worse sometimes um you know it takes up free time but like if i don't do it if i don't have either something i'm writing music i'm making a game i'm running um I just kind of deflate. <laughs> so that was what I jumped onto was writing um, short stories. It kind of seemed like a good compromise between some of the poetry I had been doing and 
the daunting prospect of like novellas, which I don't think I'll ever get into. <laughs> I salute everyone who can. I, I definitely relate because early on for the Hallowoods, one of the questions was, I could do this as a bunch of like online stories and put them out onto the internet, but I mm -hmm. feel like only a couple people would be interested in like checking the blog every couple of weeks to like pick up new bits of this story. Right. Um, when did it kind of cross your horizon that like instead of putting it out in a print sense, you could put it out in a podcast sense? Right. Um, one thing before that, I did just remember another one that subconsciously influenced me. Uh, John dies at the end. Mm. Um, that was a very like weird fiction um, written by like one of the heads of Cracked uh, at the time, but it was an online serialized like sort of horror story. Um, and I was like, that's cool. Uh, then it kind of filed it away for 10 years. <laughs> um, and just thinking about it now, thinking about like getting people to read online fiction, that's like one of the few that I can think of that worked and like he was able to sell it. Um, so there was that. But in terms of how to how I decided to do a podcast, it's very funny and humiliating. Um, so I've, I've done music. I was in bands in high school. I played guitar since like 20 or like 2000. 7 2006 or something so i had some recording equipment i had some editing experience with audio um and uh, i heard or i saw people posting about the magnus archives um never listened to a fiction podcast before in my life uh listened to one episode of it the first episode i was like that's really cool i'm not gonna listen to it anymore because i'm gonna do that <laughs> uh so then i uh i just i was like I got to jump into this. Let's just do it. Let's see what we can do here. Um, I, and like, it seemed like such a good combination of all the things that I like to do. Like I'm not so big on uh, narrating and I'm really not big on acting. Um, I really don't like to do it if I can help it, but you know, it's like, who's, I don't have anybody else, so I got to do it. Um, but it combines, you know, I could make my own music, um, make my own like ambient tracks, which I love to do and love to listen to. Um, and, writing short horror stories that people might actually tune into um, because it's already got kind of a built-in indie ecosystem whereas uh like online short story publishing does not unless again you have an in um so i heard one episode of magnus archives and uh thought that's so cool that i'm gonna do it now <laughs> many of us when confronted with the prospect of making a show it's like, I've never made a show mm -hmm. before. I don't have any contacts. Right. I'm gonna just do it all myself <laughs> and sort of like narrate everything myself mm -hmm. and do it all as a one person show. Right. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, does Dead Letter off Office of Summer Ohio have a voice cast? Occasionally, <laughs> rarely. Mm -hmm. um, I did pretty much all of it. And then um, Jesse Syrett from... Um, nowhere on air is in a couple episodes as like a secondary character um i got uh nathan from the storage papers in like one episode i think um but it was generally just i didn't know anybody you know at first so then um dylan from wobegon saw my show and was like hey dead letter office that's funny i like um rem do you want to join our group chat and i was like uh yeah cool sure and that's how uh i kind of got introduced to some people and then after you know being in a group chat was able to kind of be like hey does anyone want to do a, like 10 lines for this episode um 
because I was really nervous about, you know, like, does, will anyone want to do this? Like, uh, is it good enough to have these other people that have been established to join it? And of course, everyone is so kind that they were, I got multiple people uh, volunteering. Uh, that's one of the things I've been, I don't want to say surprised by, but I definitely don't take it for granted that when you step into the podcasting space as it exists right now, it's a very welcoming space. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people are really willing to be a guest on your show, to play a bit part for an right. episode, to, uh, to work with you on things. There's a, there's a lot of collaboration like within mm -hmm. uh, these circles. And what's also funny to me, and I think one of the reasons I think this space is so special, is that once you get into one show, then you realize like, oh, you know, it, that voice is Nathan, who has a different show. You know, right. let me go check that out. Or, you know, I recognize this actor who's been on this thing. Let me go check that out. Right. So people kind of often have these, like, organic through lines to, like, go check out other shows because we are so interconnected as a group. Yeah, that certainly helped uh, establish a small audience. Uh, I think another part of that um, is a little sad, but it's because there's such a massive bifurcation in success. Um, you know, you have a lot of these indie podcasts are doing pretty well. Like, you know, you can support yourself, but you're not making, you know, like rich person money unless you're one of the like top 10 podcasters. So everyone else outside of like the top 10 is more or less kind of in a similar bucket, like the poor person bucket, <laughs> you know, it's like the, the massive wealth inequality reflected even more so in podcasting than in a lot of other mediums. Uh, it, it is. And I would go so far as to say, like, I think if you're looking at the, the top podcast in the like horror fiction space, mm -hmm we've really got like a top five. Yeah, <laughs> It's like, there is this like pretty steep drop off. Mm -hmm. Even some of the shows that are the most like talked about or the most really like making a splash within like fan conversations right now, the creators often still work a day job because yep. <laughs> there's not a way to monetize it or they haven't achieved like the the, the massive success required to like actually make a living uh, in podcasting, uh, which is right. which is so interesting to me. Now, a lot of your horror, at least from the like two shows that you've you've worked on so far, there's a certain corporate element to it. Um, have you had a really bad experience at a corporate job that sort of inspired a lifetime of loving? <laughs> um, kind of. Uh, I worked at Walmart one summer. Um the worst thing I've ever done. Um, I no showed, no called. That's how I quit because it was so disrespectful of everyone's time and effort. Um, I knew a guy who like injured his back on the job and got fired like the next day. And then my car broke down like half a year later. Some, and in the middle of the road in a, it's this relatively small town. I grew up in like 30,000 people during college season. Um, somebody came out and helped me push my car to the side. It was the dude who hurt his back at Walmart who got fired. Like he had, he had no memory of who I was. He was just such a nice guy that he like saw me trying and came and pushed my car. So, um, that certainly didn't help. Um, but outside of that, it's kind of a lot more just, um, taking what the system we have now is and just kind of 
looking at it as a, it's so absurd. <laughs> like, and so I've worked for the state for a long time now. Um, and that is not really corporate. It's a lot more laid back, a lot lower pay generally. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's the, the, corporate structure and culture is so alien to anyone who's not in it it's just as if these people um you know like at walmart there is not a chance in hell that i would meet the person who runs it like no way no possible way i think one time i met like a regional guy <laughs> and it's like the people at the top might as well not like you know they're like a different species by that point like the amount of wealth and power they have is unreal and should not exist but you know <laughs> that's its own point but like they're so separated it's such a strange world um it, and there have been some other kind of corporate horror -y stuff i mean you can get into some of the like kafka stuff and as problematic as uh, terry gilliam might be you have things like brazil um that kind of touch on that a bit and um kind of they show the absurdity, but not so much the soul grinding horror that <laughs> happens. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. maybe not personally, I haven't had that experience so much, but just seeing it, um, you know, it gets me so mad. <laughs> kind of where along that journey did the spark for the Dead Letter Office begin? And I know you've continued it with the Department of Variance and like sort of looking at a different institution sure. in this in the same world, but. You know, where mm -hmm. was the where was the point where you were like, all right, I've done a bunch of short stories. I know right. this is what I'm going to do a series about. Sure. Um, of course, uh, for my first show, I was like, you got to have a framing device, right? <laughs> I can't just tell a story. <laughs> um, yep. So then I was like, all right, I need somebody who's going to be reading or listening or, you know, some kind of archiving thing. Um, and I was like, how can I do that? That's maybe even like kind of original, kind of like, you know, not been done a ton of times um and i thought like well uh the dead letter office in general is such an interesting thing and like mysterious in itself um from the outside from the inside it's like here's a room with a bunch of mail we couldn't deliver <laughs> but you know um your first time hearing about it you're like why do they call it that like what is this um and i thought well it would be really funny if like they put the things that they can't show or deliver to people like because it's uh supernatural um so they put them there and so at first it was pretty just uh, pretty simple framing i was just like it's just a guy in a post office reading these things and then um as it went along i got very bored of the framing device very quickly um and was like okay we gotta we gotta have something else going on here um and I just thought of what are the things I like to see in media and a lot of that is social critique um, and like cultural criticism and I was like what's what's like the number one thing I'd love to tear apart here <laughs> and that is uh, the power structures of uh, corporations and government generally. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know I think it's a wonderful thing when a storyteller kind of finds the theme that really moves them that they really want to share because i think that's mm -hmm. the moment when a story about a someone who works in an office reading spooky stories to the microphone like becomes a story about something more a story that 
uh, gets to say something more. Right. And then you've moved on since uh, Dead Letter Office um, to the new series Department of Variants. What was it that kind of went unsaid from the first series that you wanted to put into the second one? Um, and did you bring anything with you? Like any knowledge that you'd gained from the first one that you were like, okay, we did it this way the first series around. This time we've got to do something that's a little bit different. Absolutely. The biggest one is to finish writing a season before you start producing it. Um, not everyone does that, but for me, it made it so much less stressful. Um, I did some video essays years ago, like four of them. Um, and the process of like doing that was so stressful and impossible it seemed like to keep up any kind of schedule and then i kind of put myself in the same thing with like oh i'll write one story and next week i'll have another one written and recorded and we'll just do that and by the end i was like okay next episode comes out in a month see ya <laughs> um so just getting it all written first and then now i'm going to like record and score and do everything first and release it it makes the work up front a little harder, but it makes the promotion so much easier because you're not also recording and also writing and all of that. Um, I also really wanted to just get rid of a framing device, um, just like have a story happen. Um, and what I really wanted to see is like, can I just write a cool sci-fi story? Like, can I just do it without... Um, all of these weird contrivances and all of this. Can I just like put out a, a for me, a straightforward sci-fi story and make it work? Um, so I really wanted to just kind of, I came up with a sort of simple, sort of simple, uh, like framing, like one character is in a building that's locked down. The other one is on a different floor. They have a radio. They got to get out. Can I make that something? I felt like if I I felt like I could connect it, you know, in a similar world to the first series. And there's a lot more you can explore in, you know, a, a kind of surreal sci-fi horror setting. It was like, it'd be a waste to not at least have some vague connections with all of this other weirdness going on. Um, and uh, there's a lot that I would like to have happen here in the next few seasons that we'll see uh we'll see some interesting some interesting things happening <laughs> that uh, did not get said in the dead letter office that is the interesting thing as well because dead letter office was one season but mm -hmm. department of variants uh is planned for multiple seasons the first i'm hoping three the first one being out and then two on the way um mm -hmm. do you think you'll do other somewhere ohio shows after department of variants or will you kind of be done with the setting at that point we'll see um it really depends on how burned out i am by the end you know like if i don't want to do any more i might just quit the scene altogether i might just fly <laughs> off and do something else uh i've done that with so many other things but this has been so fun and the community is so welcoming and like supportive that it'd be hard to just walk away entirely um so I'll probably, um, I mean, it's kind of cool to have this like setting um, that's not like a specific like multiverse or anything. It's just a, it's just a setting basically. Um, so if I make another thing, it's very possible it will be in uh, the same setting, probably vaguely connected, just like before. Is there anything of real life Ohio that you really wanted to like bake into somewhere Ohio? Because a lot of horror shows like exist in sort of a nebulous, mm -hmm. you know, Townsville. Is, is there anything about the actual state that you've kind of baked into the story? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, in Department of Variance, that isn't really coming to the fore quite yet. It's since everything's just been happening in an office building, and office buildings countrywide are pretty similar. Um, that will be coming out here more in Season 2 and 3. Um, but in the Dead Letter office, a lot of America, you know? <laughs> um, it's like Ohio is such a strange place to be. It's so flat. It's so far from... Um, I guess if you're up north, you're kind of close to Lake Erie, but you're so far from water. <laughs> you're so far from, like, the ocean, from anywhere else. Um, and the people there vacillate between, like, some of the nicest people you've ever met and people you would never want to speak to in your life. Um, like, you know, there are... You can go to an antique store and, like, see some very nice old folks and then some that are giving you, like, death glares. And, <laughs> and it's it's it really kind of represents a lot of America's divide itself, um, you know, especially as things keep um, kind of spreading apart between urban and rural. Like, Ohio's got such a mashup of those two. We've got some pretty big cities, and then the rest of it is, like, complete farmland, basically. Like, you've got uh, Cleveland, you've got Cincinnati, Columbus, Toledo, and then, you know, a little smaller than that, we've got, like, Akron, Canton. But, like, Columbus has the metro populations like 800,000 um and it's it generally in a lot of places just feels like any other like medium to large city um and then you go 10 minutes outside and you're in the worst suburb you've ever seen <laughs> and everyone there wants you uh out of the state um so it's just it's such a weird place to be and the state government is uh very bad um and heavily gerrymandered so everyone like it's i would say the population's like 55 45 like on a political spectrum but the government is so lopsided that you know most people don't have a say at all it's like barely representative and so in the dead letter office i really wanted to some of the episodes i'm pretty explicit about it like the state itself kind of drains you a lot of the time um it's it's like so exhausting to be under constant attack <laughs> you know even if it's like metaphorical or psychic attack and not literal but you know the literal does happen but like to just be constantly reminded like outside of your city people don't want you there like <laughs> it's it's wild um and i'm sure there are plenty of other places like that you know like indiana's right next door and woof i would not want to be in indiana it's, it's just such a unique place. And it used to be like kind of the bellwether, they would say, you know, it would like the way that Ohio voted would kind of determine the way the country is feeling because it was so just such a representative of like city and farm life. But uh, now that's gotten a little more vicious. So. And so, yeah, it's an interesting landscape to kind of set this story, which is itself about divides in power and, you know, right. uh, resources. I, I definitely had to um, mention Toledo uh, in the road trip season for the Hallowitz just because <laughs> it's so strange to be just completely out in the middle of nowhere. You know, there's a highway, trees, like empty grass plains. And then 10 minutes later, the outskirts of a shambled city. And then five minutes after that, you're in Skyrise. Yeah, and part of that is that so many of our cities were hollowed out by, you know, corporations and manufacturing just leaving. Like Youngstown used to be a pretty big deal. It had like a whole steel like industry and then they just left 
So, you know, all that's left there is like, it's similar to Toledo, although Toledo has a bit more of revitalization going on, um, the good kind of revitalization going on, um, where there's like a lot of independent art and stuff flourishing. But like, outside of that, it's just like houses people couldn't afford anymore abandoned. It's like mills and industry just left there to rot. Um, so yeah, you're like in a cornfield or soy field. Um, and then two minutes later, you're like, in like there's like houses around and like maybe some like silos or something and then 10 minutes and you're in the middle of a city <laughs> and it looks nothing like the surrounding area so it's it's interesting has there been any sort of story concept that you know you've dreamed up but has been kind of too weird to execute so far definitely um one thing i did as like a bonus for the dead letter office was a really short like uh, kinetic novel it's like a you know there's no choices it's just like a little visual novel thing um, and that was so much fun uh, I want to do more but it's very time consuming very difficult I know zero programming I don't know any game design work um, but what I did in that is use a lot of um, pseudo-religious and kind of numinous imagery and language um, and play with that a lot. And I sort of went into that a bit at the end of Dead Letter Office as well, is this like pseudo-religious imagery. Um, I am not religious myself, never really have been, um, not to be a Reddit atheist or anything, but I'm an atheist. Uh, I think everyone can have their belief. It's cool. I don't really care. But Ohio is so religious, like especially outside of cities. And it's held with such reverence and such strangeness. It's so, it's so weird. Like the, the, especially the different sects of Christianity that you have that like you go 40 miles South and you're in like Southern Baptist country. And that is a totally different world from like the uh, Protestant country up North. And like, it's so wild. And I just think that the, the language used around that is so interesting and so fun to twist. Um, and so I'm going to be doing more of that in the future. <laughs> but uh, have not really done that in the first season of Department of Variants yet. So, uh, like I said, I just kind of wanted to see, like, can I just make a, a story without messing with any of that? So, but that will be coming. There was a quote, which I'm going to paraphrase, from the one of the monologues in the last episode of Dead Letter Office, which was, I believe, something like, the moral arc of this world doesn't bend toward anything. And there's some really poetic stuff in that uh, last episode, but... Uh, you know, that, that stuck out to me, especially as you've finished the first story and then gone into writing season one of department, and then you're writing more seasons now, are you coming across any themes in your own writing that you're like, huh, I didn't realize it before, but I seem to enjoy talking about this particular thing. Yeah. There's a couple, especially images, um, that I find really striking a giant hand falling from the sky. Uh, it's, I used it. I, ripped it off of Fooly Cooly, the anime, uh, where there's this giant hand that picks up a, an iron. And I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen when I was like 14. <laughs> so that's just kind of stuck with me. And it's so, it's just something that is so absurd. If you saw it in real life, it's like, that isn't, that's not happening. Like, you know, if I see like Godzilla or something, I can at least conceptualize that and be like, wow, this sucks. But like, I get it. But a giant disembodied hand is like, it's just on the one hand it's so strange on the other hand it's so familiar it's very uncanny in like the freudian sense that it's like it's like yeah that's a hand but what the hell is it doing <laughs> like um and i think a lot of 
uncanny stuff is what I find myself interested in. Um, there's like episodes where a guy like finds uh, a mannequin that ends up like looking like him and taking his place essentially. Um, there's the mimics in Department of Variants that it's hinted they will take your memories and replace you. Um, and all of that is just this uncanny feeling. And that is what usually gets to me in horror. Um, and it's like, there are very few things that scare me anymore, not to sound like a badass. I'm not, I'm a chicken. Um, horror games, I cannot do. Uh, I like play for two minutes and I, I can't. But movies, it takes a lot. Um, but Twin Peaks, The Return, um, scared the hell out of me. And uh, Mulholland Drive as well to David Lynch projects. And it's because of the sound design, partly, um, and partly just the uncanny experience of it where it, it's so close to being normal and it's not <laughs> so there's a really fine line between absurdity and horror and mm -hmm. what could almost be you know an absurd or a comedic image of you know a gigantic hands you know falling out of the sky like can also be a truly horrifying sort of eldritch thing in that like right. it you don't have a frame of reference for that or a like way to interpret that in a way that makes sense. I feel like right. for a lot of our audiences and especially because like most of us are writing for a horror ecosystem where people who are listening to your show have also listened to a couple of other shows. Um, a lot of our traditional like bones of horror become less scary. And like, mm -hmm. you know, the more horror that you watch, the more it's like, oh, I understand. This is just a space monster. And, you know, it has some feeding habits that are a little offensive to people. And, you know, <laughs> it has a strange life cycle and it reproduces. That's a cool sort of biological creature. Like the, the scariness uh, of it disappears as you begin to understand it. Um, right. And so like, I, I think it's really interesting to explore this sort of abstract space where these things that maybe would not be traditionally frightening or would be too like, uh, bizarre to, you know, be considered frightening when you actually mm -hmm. stop to think about them seriously for a moment are actually deeply terrifying creations. Right. Yeah. You said the, the like line between absurdity and horror. It's, I love to ride that line. <laughs> it's like, Half the people will laugh at this. Half of them will be so uncomfortable. And I just, I love that. Uh, I really don't mind if I get a 50-50 split. Like, I kind of love it, actually. So, Although you mentioned, like, some inspirations like Kafka and such, I think there's still not a lot of stories that I would put in this unique space of office-related supernatural horror, you know? Especially given that you know, you've mentioned that your work often comes back to the divides between the real and the surreal, the uh, privileged and the unprivileged. Um, and like, those are divides that we are also in our daily lives right now, really confronted with more than uh, right, ever before. Right. I think. Yeah, it's, um, I just, I, it, I find it so captivating, the uh, all the fiction that's starting to pop up that is a lot more focused on this weirdness, um, this divide and the absurdity. So is there any like confused feedback that you've gotten over making these stories? Cause it's a, it's at, at times I think a difficult genre for people to parse. Right. Yeah. Um, 
myself personally and I've seen others will get, you know, whether it's reviews, comments, whatever, that things don't really make sense. Um, and I think that that is extremely unhelpful <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that that kind of coincides with, uh, this is kind of a personal uh, pet peeve, I guess, um, the like wickification of uh, media and like the need to make it all understandable lore and have it all connect together. You know, I love some good lore. I love Bloodborne, one of my favorite games. It's all lore, but like, I don't think everything needs to be understood and needs to be a logical plot step or a logical, like, or even like necessarily in character decision. Uh, like we all make such, humans are not logical in any way to me. <laughs> um, and we make such strange decisions all the time, um, even to ourselves. Like, especially under capitalism, we're so alienated from everything, including ourselves that like, I couldn't wickify myself. Why should I do it for a plot? Um, so, you know, that also is a lot of the advice kind of given with screenwriting is partly that's just because that's what gets sold, um, you know, because if you don't have it, these steps in the script, no one will buy it. Um, but also just because that seems to be what is desired by studios and by some audiences is to have this sort of rigid structure or these understandable plot beats and things. And, I don't think that's very helpful to think about when you're writing. Um, you need to think about like one, what's the, what's the feeling you want to convey who, what audience are you targeting? And like, just do what you want to do. If people don't get it, that's fine. Like you're probably not going to become a millionaire, whether people get it or not. So like, just, you know, we have such limited time here. Do what you want to do. Don't worry about whether like, you know, the dark night of the soul appears on page 20 of your script. It can be useful, but, you know, trying to follow that will lead you to formulaic uh, content goo. It is very true. And also, I think the, the purpose is sometimes fundamentally misunderstood because a lot, and initially, like when I was trying to learn how to write better, I would consult, um, you know, these writing websites and they would tell you like, oh, here's the three act plot structure. You know, there's the, uh, the journey through the door mm -hmm. at the 25% mark and the, the moment of truth at the 50% mark and the, you know, uh, mo the darkest hour at the 75% mark. Mm -hmm. A, I was endlessly fascinated because then I would start watching movies and pause it halfway through and be like, oh, this is where the moment of truth happens. Yeah, and you B, can told you though no. it's like seeing the matrix code it's like you know you can it's so hard to go back um but that's why mm -hmm. i love so many things that just completely ignore that and have like the worst pacing you've ever seen sometimes i love that sometimes i can't stand it but you know if it's like there's there's no arcs at all here what's going on i'm like yes like uh um inland empire another david lynch movie a lot of people really hate um, because it's three hours long, it's meandering, it doesn't make sense, all of this. And I'm like, I love it. It's so weird. <laughs> There's a movie that I caught on a plane flight, you know, in that sort of dark, ill-lit, sleep-deprived portion of eight hours where you're just stuck in a metal tube. Um, and it was a film called A Ghost Story. Oh, yeah. And, and A Ghost Story is very quiet. Some would say it's criminally boring. Um <laughs> It's very long. There's a lot of shots that are just static. People move around a room while someone draped in a sheet as a ghost stands in the corner. 
Um, and there is a almost five minute long sequence of a woman eating pie in a hallway. Right. Um, and you don't realize how long five minutes is until you've watched somebody <laughs> pie for five minutes. But yeah. what uh, I found the film so ethereal and so beautiful. And even in the pie scene, you watch and this woman acts out the five stages of grief as she eats this pie. By the end of her pie, she, you can tell on her face that she has gone through grieving this character who's died, and she's kind of come to terms, and she moves on with her life, and that's the point of the pie scene. Um, and I love to see when people try to push the limit of what seems feasible or what mm -hmm. seems possible when it comes to their storytelling. And if you want to like tell us about the grieving process of this character through a pie eating sequence. I, I think there's a way to do that, that, you know, uh, is quite powerful. Yeah. And for me, that extends to so many other things too. Like I really like drone and ambient music and like, I don't listen to it all the time, but especially writing like a 30 minute long piece that has like occasional crescendos and stuff, but doesn't have a traditional song structure. Uh, I usually, usually love that. So you'd mentioned that, one of the things that people should prioritize when writing their stories or their shows is the feeling they want to convey over whether it hits all the narrative plot beats uh, of the you know traditional act. Um, what do you want people to feel as they walk away from Department of Variance? In season one of Department of Variance, I want them to feel mildly triumphant and then gut punched. Um, <laughs> the the arc of the series will overall i feel like the feeling will be like confused bittersweetness like <laughs> um dead letter office i wanted uh, a drop in the stomach and that's what you leave with um but because you know i think having a bleak ending can be good but i don't want it in everything i do i think uh, one of the major feelings i want people to feel with season one of department of variants so far is like i love the the feeling of getting to know characters in a hard situation which is pretty common to a lot of things but that's kind of what i prioritized in a lot of the writing of the scenes is like how can we show some some character off here how can we show some little quirks going on um so the first season i, I really just want people to kind of feel uh build a kind of fictional relationship you know with these people the way you do in any media that you end up really liking, um, spend some time with them, feel a little scared, but it's not too scary. It's, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's like comfortable or cozy horror, but I'm not really pushing too many like horror buttons with that. Um, season two will have a bit more of that, but, um, generally just like mild unease and kinship with bad times <laughs> to, to feel like you're not alone when things go bad essentially is, is what we're, we're looking at here um you know the office is trying to kill you and you don't have anyone around you but you have someone on the other line who kind of doesn't like you at first but you're both in it together like even if you don't like each other you got to deal with it and get out somehow do you hope in any way that this podcast could be the person on the end of the line for someone else i really hope so i mean like whenever I make anything, my hope is that like one person finds it impactful. And that's really literally all I care about. You know, I don't do this as a job. I can't care about like keeping an audience or making money. Like I, that's not going to happen. Um, 
I make, you know, a very small amount on Patreon, not nearly enough to support myself, let alone a whole cast. Um, so like, I just, if, if one person, like it impacts them, it influences them, especially if it makes them go make something like, I don't care if they even like rip me off, do it. Like <laughs> it's, I, I have such a, I mean, unless they like start trying to call it my thing and say, I, you know, if, if they're, as long as they're not misrepresenting me and my stuff, like rip me off, do it all you want. I do it all the time. Um, so like, I, I would hope that the things I write, the, like my biggest dream and like the, the greatest happiness I get is when people tell me that how it's affected them in, in some way, even if they like hate it and it inspires them to go make something cooler. That is so cool. Like do that, please. you mentioned the wikification of podcasts. Um, and this is, I think something that's really been popularized, uh, you know, with the idea of the red string board and the idea that every plot point you get you know, goes on the board, it'll all be relevant later. It's all connected. There's all like an explanation that we're waiting to find for everything that seems horrific or, you know, nightmarish within the show. At the same time, though, if you explain the absurd too much, it's no longer absurd and it's just sort of another thing that exists within the world. Um, do you ever find yourself at odds when it comes to maintaining the absurdity versus giving people that stuff to fan theorize about and try to put the pieces? Together? Oh, absolutely. Every time I'm writing something, because I myself love it when something casually mentioned long ago comes back up. But I don't like it when that becomes the formula, you know, when that's what you expect, because then it doesn't work anymore. So, you know, if a character gets mentioned in episode two and comes back in episode 40, I usually like love that. Um, but if that's the whole thing, then I get very tired of it. So I am constantly like, it'd be really cool to do a callback to this and have like this plot point come back up. And I have to tell myself, like, not everything needs to be explained. I don't need to tell them how, you know, this this creature got here and <laughs> how these people's pasts came together. You know, there will be some of it. You can't, I can't help it. There'll be some things like that. There'll be lore and clues and things to piece together because I think that's just fun. Um, but I do try to make some things not make sense and never make sense. So we'll see how I can, if I can stick uh, to that myself. A man in a rumpled gray suit steps through a paper strewn office Flickering fluorescent lights burning in the darkness above, he approaches a photocopier, which is spewing papers out into the air. On each sheet is a picture and a word. The picture is of the skull of Rat Grimes. What wisdom do the words spell? Let yourself be bored. And if I may expound on that for a moment. <laughs> um... It's advice I heard from um, Mike Rugnetta, who ran Idea Channel, Ideas Channel for PBS, and does um, like uh, Fun City Ventures, I think is the podcast name. Um, and it's shared by some others as well. Um, that I find myself wanting to entertain, like have stimulation entertainment all the time, um, and I do it way too often. But if if you're struggling or if you want a good idea, just like sit in a room, don't read. Don't watch anything. Don't listen to anything. Let your mind like hate itself and try to entertain itself. And you'll probably have some interesting thoughts. Um, 
I would bet it's similar to what some people can get out of like, it's not what everyone gets, but what some people might get out of certain kinds of like meditation um, is to kind of make yourself cut off from all outside forces as much as you can and let yourself come up with something. Um, because if you sit there for 15 minutes with no stimulation, no entertainment, you know, you'll probably be fine, but you might have some interesting ideas or like there was a time in Dead Letter Office season one where I was struggling to find new ideas for episodes and um, I shut off my music, I shut off the computer and just stared at the wall for about 15 minutes and let like things turn around in my head. I'm like, okay, what if there was a guy on like a fishing boat and he's like fishing and he gets a like a monster? No, that's no good. Throw it out, crumple it, throw it away. Um, what if he's fishing and the scene isn't real it's a play on a stage there we go okay how do we like how do we continue from there um and it's um something i've seen in writing advice is like similar to fishing is you're going to be sitting there very bored for a long time but you might catch a really good idea uh on the end of that um so i think that is something that i struggle with but i think is very important and when i do it it works so <laughs> that i think is wonderful advice um and i think i i often find that i'm not bored by media i find that even you know in the sense that you're walking through a quiet landscape and there's fog and birds and uh, wind in the grass to enjoy even in things that are very dreamy or very slow, there's something to admire about why they chose to make it that way and what feeling it's tried to convey. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so important, both as a uh, consumer of media uh, and, as a, and as a writer to let yourself be bored. I love that. Thank you so much for uh, coming to talk with me today. Ryan. Yeah, thank you for having me on this fun little program. Rat Grimes produces the Somewhere Ohio family of Midwestern horror podcasts, including the Dead Letter Office of Somewhere Ohio and the Department of Variants of Somewhere Ohio. You can find their shows at somewhereohio.com or find them in social media spaces at at Rat Grimes. Hello from the Hallowood is produced by William A. Wellman. That's me. For first access to new Skull Sessions with other voices in the horror podcasting space, look to the Hallowoods Patreon at patreon.com slash Hallowood.